Welcome to the backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf. I'm your host and co-founder of New Club Golf Society, Matt Considine. Today, we have a very special guest hailing from Tallahassee, Florida, a committed litigator and father. Sidney Matthew is on the show. He's a golf historian who knows a heck of a lot about a, a certain individual that we wanted to know a lot more about here at New Club. And that person is Alexa Sterling, one of the greatest amateur golfers that has ever lived. Certainly one of the greatest amateur golfers or most, most decorated from the state of Georgia, right behind her childhood friend, Bobby Jones. As you'll find out on this podcast, Alexa became notorious for her ability with a golf club. But what we really connected with about the story of Alexa and why she's going to don the belt for our first ever Atlanta club champion this coming week is she was a well-balanced individual. She was a violinist. She was a bond trader. She was a uh, a wife and a, and a mother, and she never lost that competitive spirit. She played until her very last days, and we just we just loved her sportsmanship. And you'll hear a lot of tales about her from Sydney on this this show. Sydney is considered to be the foremost expert of the game's grandest gentleman in Bobby Jones, hence the connection to Alexa. He uh, is a member of the RNA, and with that holds his RNA jacket that dons the same 24 karat fasteners that Bobby Jones jacket did as well. Um, this is just a fascinating gentleman. He's written 12 books on golf, eight of which document the details of Jones life. And if you remember in the nineties, that Jones documentary that ran before or after the masters, uh, the life and times of Bobby Jones. Yep. You guessed it. That was Sydney as well. He's a, a wonderful gentleman and we were honored to uh, connect with them. Thanks to Jay Ravel. Uh, another former guest of this podcast who is also a Tallahassee native. And uh, when you talk to a guy like Sydney with that wealth of knowledge and acumen around golf history and the game, it's, it's really, truly an honor. So we have a lot of fun on this one. We learn a lot about Alexa and uh, send us down a couple other rabbit holes that I think you as the listener will enjoy. Congrats to our 16 that are playing this week in the club championship down in Atlanta at the Athens Country Club, a 1926 Donald Ross. Uh, those final 16 are going to bat, be battling out for that belt I mentioned with Alexa's likeness uh, donning the front of it. That's going to be a lot of fun. We'll be there and looking forward to it. For our northern uh, competitors and members, I know it's getting tough. The the weather is is turning the other direction. The leaves have fallen, but remember, there's simulated season that we have to look forward to. And the Sims are back at five iron golf. Uh, we got our league teams just loaded up. So those are now available to jump on. They begin November 1st and 2nd. If you're not a member of new club, check out five iron golf. They're in all kinds of locations. Now, Baltimore, Las Vegas, New York, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Washington, DC. And they just put on a, a wonderful, wonderful time for golfers and non-golfers alike. Um, those leagues start November 1st and 2nd. Go check out your local five iron and thanks to them for all they do. Now, without further ado, on to the show. Sydney Matthew, welcome to the backdrop. Happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. I am uh, very delighted to be with you this afternoon. Uh, on the backdrop, we connected over some uh, a project that we had started at New Club, which is having amateur golfers don our championship medals uh, that we play for within our golf society. And 
the person that uh, whose story I really connected with, who uh, we were really smitten with in, in, uh, for our Atlanta chapter, was a woman by the name of Alexis Sterling. And so I started doing research on Alexis Sterling, and your name popped up all over the place, Sid. So uh, I, I'm very excited to have you with us today and, and just wanted to start off by saying thanks for being here. Uh, we really appreciate it, and I'm uh, hopeful that uh, maybe we add a little something to the uh, to the history uh, that'll be useful to people. Well, it's it's one of the things with history that uh, I just kind of assume when I stumble upon things that most golfers in a, a certain area would know who these people are and what a bit of the story. But I have found that not many of our members are aware of Alexis Sterling or what her story was in golf. And so uh, for them, I think it will be interesting today as, as we got the right guy on the call uh, to be with us and, and di- delve into her past. You know, it's interesting because uh, Alexa uh, was uh, of a uh, century ago, talking about 100 years of uh, history uh, that's, that's uh, succeeded her time. And of course, most people think the greatest uh, woman golfer who ever lived was Annika Sorenstam, and you know, and during our time, you know, she she might uh, likely have been. But uh, back in the day, you can imagine uh, golf uh, only came to America, you know, probably in in uh, 1880, 1875. Uh, came to Ottawa and Montreal before that, uh, and you know, around the turn of the century, we only had maybe 50 to 75 golf courses. So imagine uh, when Alexa came on, you know, it was uh, turn of the century and uh, people don't remember what happened a hundred years ago. So uh, this is, I think, very helpful. And and it's also very interesting. Before we dive into Alexa, and I got plenty of questions for you there, um, a little background on Sydney and uh, our members will recognize your name. You know, we're all subscribers of the Golfer's Journal. So there was a wonderful piece written about you in, I believe it was uh, number 16 um, of the Golfer's Journal. And uh, so many of our members will be familiar with you, Sid. But for those that aren't, could you maybe give us a a little bit of background on yourself, how you got into becoming a historian and uh, and why we see your name so often uh, when we're searching for things like Bobby Jones uh, and others? Well, I... I, uh grew up in a newspaper family. My dad published uh, 20 newspaper titles and uh, he bought and sold chains of newspapers and he needed uh, a good airport to travel around the country to do that. So Tampa had the best airport. So he hunted around Tampa and found uh, the Kellogg mansion uh, for sale in about 1963. And uh, we landed in Dunedin uh, which happened to be the headquarters of the PGA National at that time, up until about 1963 or four, when it moved down to uh, JDM in, in West Palm Beach. So I grew up uh, trotting the links of Dunedin Country Club, and I just thought these that these guys were just a bunch of old cranky old guys, and it turns out that they were the most famous golfers in history. They all uh, were from Northern clubs and they came down during the winter and they got to play golf for free. Uh, and they uh, had a run of the place. Uh, so without even knowing it, I was steeped in, 
uh, learning about uh, Walter Hagen, you know, from the guy that uh, that Hagen beat in 1919 at Brayburn, uh, Mike Brady. Uh, you know, when I was in high school, I was uh, hitting uh, practice shots, and and this guy in a pork pie hat was sitting over in a folding chair at his house across the street, and he came over and he said, "Son, what are you doing?" I said, "Oh, I'm hitting these wee pitches," and he said, "Who taught you how to do that?" I said, "Well." Irv Sloss up at the club up here. He said, he don't always talking about kid. Give me the club. I'll show you. And he gave me a golf lesson. I got a golf lesson from Mike Brady, who lost in the 1919 open playoff with Walter Hagen. So, you know, this stuff didn't really uh, resonate with me until uh, I uh, went to law school, uh, practiced law here in Tallahassee, and uh, got a call one day. Uh, from uh, Tom Cousins. Uh, Tom had just bought Eastlake, uh, you know, which was uh, down and out and going to be turned into a, a basically to a scrapyard. And he needed to uh, refurbish the place. It didn't have a stick of furniture in it. And I had uh, become very interested in, in Bob Jones uh, in, in a, a class action litigation that I had with my firm. My firm litigated against Bobby Jones law firm in the Dalcon Shield IUD cases back in the 70s and early 80s. And so I was always up in the Jones law offices, 75 Poplar Street, Atlanta, Georgia, and taking depositions of their experts and walking the halls and looking at all the junk on the walls and, and uh, meeting his law partners, Arthur Howell and Gene Branch and, and all of those, those characters. And I became interested in Bob Jones really as a person. You know, I knew he was a famous golfer and uh, all of those trappings and a lawyer. But, uh, you know, I became interested in, in all of the things that he had done, which were pretty extraordinary. You know, he, he was a lawyer. He was a writer. Uh, he invented uh, the, the most uh, technologically advanced golf clubs for Spalding. Uh, he, won, he happened to win the Grand Slam of golf, which nobody's repeated, uh, and wrote five books and did uh, golf movies. So I began really focusing upon him uh, because nobody really cared about him. They all cared about old Tom Morris, who was 100 years back, and, and they uh, wanted to, uh, you know, pass on that history. Uh, so I just noticed that a lot of these old guys were uh, not being paid attention to. Nobody was capturing their oral histories. So I grabbed a television crew and went around two or three times a year and interviewed all these guys and cobbled together a documentary called Life and Times of Bobby Jones. And uh, I had Ben Wright as my on-screen presenter, and uh, we cobbled together a two-hour Ken Burns-style uh, documentary, which was really, we thought was fantastic. And uh, then Ben uh, said some uncomplimentary things about women's anatomy getting in the way of the golf swing, got fired from CBS. And uh, so I, I got a, a, a phone call uh, from a fellow in Canada. And he said, I hear that you're a collector of Bobby Jones golf clubs. I said, well, I got a few, you know, a few hundred. And he said, I want a left handed. Uh, Crow Flight 1931 uh, sheath-covered steel uh, left-handed one-iron. 
I said, well, what do you do? He said, I am a movie producer. I went to uh, UCLA film school with Francis Ford Coppola. I got a $5 million budget with the Honey Brothers. We make films. Rachel Ward is in my current film. Uh, and I said, you're the guy I need. I, I've done this documentary. He said, stop. He said, I talk to idiots like you all the time. <laughs> and they think that they've got, you know, the cat's meow and in the bottle. And they waste my time. And I said, well, let me tell you something. I have a left-handed 1932 pyrotone sheet covered steel crow flight one iron. Will, you will watch my movie. <laughs> he called me back. He said, I think you have something here. I said, no, I know we got something. And uh, we, uh, we replaced Ben. We didn't replace Ben. Uh, ben uh, stood aside. And uh, I, uh, I'm a member of, uh, I was lucky enough to be elected a member of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews uh, in uh, 2000. And prior to that, I went to Oxford toward my law degree in 73. So I got to go back over and over again to Great Britain and meet a lot of friends over the years. And one of them was Sir Sean Connery, 007. So I, uh, Dave Kennan, the CBS asked me, do you think Ben, uh, you know, you think Sean would replace Ben? And I said, I don't know. I'll ask him. Uh, wasn't too hopeful. And, and Sean said, Sydney, I would be delighted. He said, I hope you can take that mustache and fold it up and put it in your pocket at the end of the day. You look like the last man out of Stalingrad. <laughs> and so I said, well, you must have uh, played golf uh, your whole life being a Scotsman and born in uh, Edinburgh, uh, the Fountain Bridge neighborhood and whatever. And he said, no, Sydney. He says, I first learned how to play golf during the Goldfinger film. And I said, well, that explains why they never showed an entire one of your swings in the Goldfinger film. <laughs> so you can imagine he and I had a very interesting uh, relationship, giving each other the needle. And we played golf over there and over here uh, uh, quite a number of years running. And uh, Sean narrated The Life and Times of Bobby Jones that aired on CBS, you know, for eight years running. Uh, never went to uh, uh, video. Uh, we still have a option for television. We'll reprise it, you know, in uh, the next year or two. Yeah. So, uh, so that was really kind of uh, an intro. And uh, by the time Tom came knocking on my door, I had a pretty substantial Bobby Jones collection and uh, loaned it to Tom to put on the inside of the walls of uh, Eastlake where it is today. Yeah, it sounds like that. Uh, by the way, I, I have a hard time just saying your name without the um, the Scottish accent now that I heard 007, how he said it was Shidney. Yeah, Shidney. He says, I must ask you a question, Shidney. I'll never not think of that now that when I say your name. Um, that, that phone call from Tom Collins sounded like a pivotal change kind of in the direction of... Uh, I don't know if you would call it amateur historian to uh, professional in a way, but it seemed like it was a, a hobby of yours that you were doing for your own interests. And now you do so much for uh, so many other clubs. I know Atlanta athletic club and, and Eastlake are, are two big ones, but other clubs as well. Is that, was that a big pivotal moment for you in this uh, chase of history? Is that becoming more uh, official with it? it? It was, it was a, a next step. 
uh, you know, I had written uh, articles for the uh, golf uh, periodicals, uh, Links, Golf Monthly, British Golf Monthly, uh, Golf Digest, uh, you know, and and uh, had uh, uh, published two or three books. One of them was a real yawner that would put you to sleep called History of Bobby Jones Clubs. Nobody had ever written about the clubs that he assembled to use for the Grand Slam. You know, in, 19, in November 22, 1925, the clubhouse at Eastlake burned to the ground, along with Jones's clubs, except for his putter, Calamity Jane, which I theorized was under his bed. The only woman that he ever slept with other than his wife was Calamity Jane. And uh, so he then assembled 16 clubs that he used for the Grand Slam over the next succeeding four years. And uh, so I, I uh, published an entire book on that, which was interesting to, you know, a dozen people who collect clubs, but uh, uh, covered, uh, you know, other aspects of golf. But uh, Eastlake uh, needed to sort of be rebranded. You know, the Atlanta Athletic Club had moved to Duluth and, and uh, uh, Eastlake fell on hard times and Tom came back and decided to revive it. Um, and part of that was uh, its history needed to be done. So I did a 695-page uh, history of Eastlake, Champions of Eastlake, Bobby Jones and Friends. Um, and that has led, you know, to a total of uh, a dozen or more golf books on various subjects, uh, eight of them on Bob Jones and, uh, and his uh, ilk. Uh, golden age of golf, which, you know, was my main interest. Yeah. So, uh, so that really was the segue into it. Uh, and, you know, it's been uh, quite an interesting uh, ride. You know, I'm kind of like Chaucer sitting on the city gates, watching all the circus animals come in and out of the city. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Well, let, let's get to the, the focus of our, our chat today and the woman of the hour. Uh, Alexis Sterling, you know, I'll I'll start with kind of the end is one of the research pieces that you sent me. There was one in particular where um, they they clearly had asked Alexa to share her uh, thoughts on Bobby Jones, uh, her good dear childhood friend, um, when he was ill and when when he was at the end of his 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 life, and um, she wrote very eloquently about him, and it made me. Um, think that here's a three-time United States women's amateur champ, uh, two-time Southern women's champion, two-time Canadian ladies champion. Um, she had all these accolades and not once did she interject in 11 pages, uh, comments about her own game or her own personality. It was, it was really beautifully written about Bobby. And, and I just thought about you and, and your job and, um, how, you know, to, to, to find information on, on, Mr. Jones, I'm sure, was challenging at times. But uh, wh why is it you think we don't have as much about Alexa out there readily accessible for you know golf geeks like me that that dive into this stuff? Why was her story not as broadly told um, as the as the the men's equivalent? Well, I think there's two reasons. Uh, one is uh, she uh, hid her light under a bushel. Uh, she was very self-deprecating and never really uh, blew her own horn about all of her accomplishments. Uh, she never dined out on, uh, you know, her celebrity. Uh, 
She never asked any favors. She never really insinuated herself uh, in the, the milieu of golf. Um, and, um, and secondly, she did not have an OB Keeler. OB Keeler was Jones's publicist. He was the uh, writer for the Atlanta Constitution Journal and followed Bob Jones 150,000 miles, chronicled you know, all of his major championships and made him famous. Uh, very few people uh, have, you know, that luxury. They don't have their own publicist. You know, Walter Hagen had uh, Bob Harlow and, and, uh, and Corcoran uh, to follow him around, Dickie Martin, H.P. Martin. Uh, but but uh, Alexa was really a very shy, modest, uh, you know, to a fault. Uh, uh, person, and uh, she didn't need the accolades. She didn't. She was comfortable in her own skin, and she didn't need everybody. Uh, you know, uh, great friend, hell, uh, well met. Uh, you know, and and uh, so I think that that is uh, uh, kind of the main answer, and it's extraordinary. Uh, because when Bob Jones uh, grew up, Alexa was four years older than Bob Jones. And she became famous long before he did. Uh, you know, she won her first uh, major championship in 1916. You know, in 1916, Bob Jones played in his first U.S. amateur as a 14-year-old at Marion and was the medalist. And, uh, you know, got beat by Robert A. Gardner and kicked out. And, uh, you know, he was, he never won a major championship until uh, he won at Inwood, uh, you know, in 1923. By that time, Alexa had already won the triple. She won the U.S. Amateur in 1916, wasn't uh, uh, carried out during World War I, uh, then 1919, 1920, three years in a row. So, her fame was uh, long established before Bob Jones, and she really taught him the uh, sportsmanship that made Bob Jones the person that is admired today. When you mention Bob Jones' name, they say, well, he was a true sportsman. Uh, you know, he, he played the ball where it lied. He didn't cheat. Uh, he said, you know, if you enter the tournament and you make the lowest score and you don't cheat, they've got to give you the cup. Uh, but he had a long time running before he reached that plateau because uh, he had uh, a temper uh, that just about got him kicked out of golf. Uh, you know, he decorated more trees with his golf clubs than, than anybody. And uh, he could swear like a sailor and never repeat a syllable and, uh, and was not afraid to. And so he played uh, golf with Perry Adair, who was also a champion, Southern amateur champion before Bob, 1920, 1921. And they, they played as the Dixie Whiz kids at Eastlake, Alexa, Bob, Perry Adair. Uh, and, you know, Bob... Uh, would uh, blow up and throw his ball and cuss and and stomp around and and throw his clubs and and put on a tantrum, 
And Alexa would just look at him and say, Bob, can we just play golf? And it finally got to him to the point where, you know what? I thought that I was just hurting myself. I didn't think that I was hurting anybody else. But I can now understand that uh, my displays of, uh, of uh, temper tantrums adversely affected the other player and that that is not good sportsmanship. But Alexa taught him that lesson, chained him into it, and he gave her all the credit for it. Yeah. You know, he, he, he said later, you know, that she was the one who, who made him petulant enough to change his ways. And, of course, Bob, instead of playing mano a mano, you know, hitting one Goliath after another, created a fiction of old man par and he played against the golf course, not against his opponent, which also leveled his deportment and made him able to be, as Gene Sarazen once said, uh, one of the most fun people to play with. You thought you were playing with your best friend. And by the way, you were, but that's just the way that Alexa was. She was, she was in one of the uh, amateur major amateur tournaments that she ended up winning. And her opponent, um, uh, Caverly, Mildred Caverly, was having trouble with her mashy iron. And she was hitting it with a shut face. And Alexa saw that, gave her a golf lesson the night before in the finals. And, uh, and uh, came within one shot of losing because Caverly picked up, you know, the tip and, and used it to great effect. But that was just the way that Alexa was. You know, golf was just a game to be played. It wasn't uh, an end-all. And, uh, you know, she had her priorities straight. You know, it was, you know, God, family, and uh, and her, uh, her uh, various interests, which were very uh, extensive and, and, and varied widely, uh, and her family. And, you know, she didn't give a rip about uh, uh, golf halls of fame. Took a hundred years to put her in the golf hall of fame. Crazy. And there, there is a sense I get from, uh, particularly her writing. I, I felt that when I, when I, when I read what someone else, how they say their own words, you, you get a sense that she did have perspective. I mean, with all the titles to her name at such a young age, she still had those interests and those other hobbies. Um, she, she did. Before we get to those, I wanted to ask you about her, her father, uh, because in some letters you shared, Bob gave her credit for his attitude on the golf course, you know, making a 180 and uh, uh, being that gentleman that he became. But she gave credit to her father for um, instilling that in her. So what do you know about Alexis' dad and and kind of that early golf influence? Well, uh, Alexander Sterling was an EENT, high ear, nose and throat uh, doctor. Um, he hailed from Peebles, Scotland, and he ended up marrying an opera singer, Nora. And uh, they, he wanted to come to America, and he figured Chicago. So he sent all his belongings, shipped them uh, to Chicago. And then on his way to Chicago, he learned that in Atlanta, they were having uh, an international cotton exposition, it's like the World's Fair. And he figured, that's where I need to go. That's the happening town. So he diverted the, all his uh, belongings and furniture and everything 
sent it to Atlanta and set up in Atlanta and um, bought a house across the street from the gates of what is now Eastlake. But um, when the when the kids started uh, playing uh, golf uh, and he saw this petulant kid uh, acting out, uh, he banned Alexa for two years from playing with Bob Jones until Bob finally changed his ways and became a gentleman. And uh, uh, Dr. Sterling was, uh, you know, he was the first golf teacher uh, of Alexa. And, uh, and then, uh, of course, he allowed uh, uh, his uh, good friend, Jimmy Maiden, the golf pro who succeeded Alex Smith, who was the first pro at Eastlake. They all came from Carnoustie. Alex Smith, who you know, won the Open twice, uh, 1904, 1909, 1910. Um, he was the first golf pro. He went to Nassau in New York, then came to Eastlake. Then Jimmy Maiden came to Nassau, then took uh, Alex's place at Eastlake and taught Alexa how to play. It was kind of interesting because today, uh, a lot of teachers teach that you, in the golf swing, you hit up the le uh, against the left leg as a post. You post up against the left leg. Jimmy taught her, you post up against the right leg. The left knee is bent, which you can imagine that dynamic. Yeah. But, um, in the same way that Bob Jones had a gift, uh, innate gift in mechanical engineering, he got a degree in, in uh, uh, Georgia Tech with mechanical engineering. Alexa had the same interest in mechanical things. She loved trains. She spent weekends going and researching trains and talking to the engineer about how they worked. And, uh, you know, she, uh, she invented furniture and manufactured furniture, built all kinds of stuff, including a huge 12-seat uh, 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 table with uh, big tree trunks underneath it for, for the legs. Um, and, uh, you know, she had these... these uh, uh, varied interests in mechanical things she was a shade tree mechanic she learned how to fix car engines and in world war one she went to work for the red cross fixing their ambulances she fixed the engines tuned them up and uh you know for a girl to do that it was back then was really uh, quite remarkable and and she pulled it off, you know, with great aplomb. It was no big deal for her. You know, it was just an passing interest that she had. But she also had a very uh, refined side. She had a real balance to her character. You know, she could, she could uh, hang with the mechanics, but she also played concert violin from age eight and played with the uh, Atlanta uh, Symphony. And had her own recitals, and uh, you know, and uh, traveled around, and uh, uh, she, you know, uh, uh, also uh, got an interest in uh, securities, and went to New York City and became a bond trader for uh, for the Strauss Company out of Chicago, 
Um, so you can imagine what a varied interest she had, you know, and we haven't even mentioned the word golf, <laughs> you, know, we, uh, you, you know, she would have had a, a, a grand life, you know, even if she never touched a golf club, but uh, Dr. Sterling thought that golf was a gentle, gentle person's game. And so uh, he showed her the, you know, the, the etiquette and, uh, and that's what she became famous for. Yeah, I, th I think I, I faintly remember Bob saying that, um, you know, he's four years younger than Alexa, but they were both uh, kind of given the menu of tennis, swimming, and golf as uh, fitness for themselves, a part of a group that maybe had ailments when they were younger. Um, what can you tell us about that? And, and uh, why did these two, they, they seem to quickly gravitate to the golf side? Well, uh Back uh, after the uh, recent unpleasantness with General Sherman, when the town got burned down, there was one house across the street from East Lake that was not burned down. There were nine houses in Atlanta that were not burned down. Peachtree, because Sherman stayed there, he stayed at the Peachtree Clubhouse. So that was not burned down. And General uh, or uh, Colonel Alston, Robert Alston had a, has a house across the street from the from the, the now the twelfth uh, fairway, and General uh, uh, one of uh, Sherman's uh, generals uh, stayed in the uh, Alston house, and that's why that was not burned down. There are actually uh, uh, deep gouge marks where the Union soldiers hit the, their rifle butts on the mahogany railing that goes up the stairs. You can still see it today. Um, and uh, so uh, here you had the town of Atlanta being revitalized uh, after, after that. And it was, it was built uh, ingeniously around a whole series of parks. Uh, you know, the Olmstead brothers were... Uh, building parks in New York, you know, and Cortland, and they, they built Washington. They laid out Washington. And uh, uh, Atlanta had a ring of parks around it. They had East Lake Park, Chastain Park, Grant Park. Bob was born in Grant Park. And they were, uh, East Lake was like three miles out of town. So uh, you would take a carriage ride and get the cool air blowing through your hair uh, as you surried out to uh, the the park, and uh, it was really a uh, an amusement center. It's like Coney Island. Tom Poole uh, had a monkey with an organ grinder, and he had a, a steamboat uh, that famously got stolen one time. It was sold uh, by somebody that didn't own it, <laughs> and they had to go get it back. Uh, but you would go out to East Lake and you would uh, go on the steamboat and then you would uh, get a hot dog and, and watch the monkey grinder with the monkey and and you'd go swimming. And uh, and then they decided, well, you know, if we're going to be any kind of a uh, upscale amusement uh, park, we've got to have golf. And so uh, Harry Atkinson uh, graduated from Harvard and came down and ultimately uh, put together the franchise for uh, uh, 
the Georgia Electric uh, franchise, Georgia Power, now Southern Company. But uh, Harry uh, opened up a uh, corporation to buy, well, to, to lease and then buy uh, the property for the golf course. Um, he recruited one of his classmates um, who was Thomas Jefferson Coolidge. He was the great-grandson of Thomas Jefferson. That was Harry's buddy. And he owned uh, Colony Insurance in Boston, and he funded Harry Atkinson's uh, uh, monopoly. He bought out Joel Hurt and, and built Georgia Power. And uh, by that time, at the Atlanta Athletic Club had been formed in about 1894, 1895. Um, and uh, George Washington Adair, who was a, a wannabe developer, uh, was the head of the club. And he went to Harry and said, see here, we need a golf course and you've got the option to the golf course. And he said, how'd you like to, to sell it to us? He said, okay, I'll sell it to you for a dollar. He gave Atlanta Athletic Club the property for a dollar. And of course, they then built uh, the East Lake Club. They had a uh, townhouse uh, on Carnegie Way. Um, which interestingly, as an aside, Bob Jones was going to visit one time and it was right before the Grand Slam and a car was up on a high incline, uh, lost its bra emergency brake, it was unoccupied. Somebody had put the brake on and it failed. And the car came careening down the hill and would have killed Bob Jones, except a little kid said, look out, mister. And Jones did a broad jump, and the car smashed into the building right behind him. He almost died. But uh, the Atlanta Athletic Club, you know, got uh, uh, Tom Bendelow, who was the, the Johnny Appleseed of golf courses back in the turn of the century, and he came in and laid out the golf course. And uh, uh, we're talking about, you know, 1907, 1908, they built you know, seven holes, then it was nine, then they made it into 18. And of course, um, then uh, they got tired of it because it had three par four and a halfs in a row. Four, par and a half, four par and a half holes on the golf course. Those they called the death half march of the Bataan. Yeah, they said that it was like the death march to the Bataan, though, you know, you <laughs> yeah. playing three par fives in a row and you were wore out. So uh, Tom Bendelow's formula was to show up and lay the golf course out clockwise. Uh, Donald Ross came along and he said, no, no, no. And he re re revamped about a half a dozen golf courses, including Sleepy Hollow and several others, by changing the routing to counterclockwise. And that was the magic. Hmm. And of course, you know, that was, that's what really made Eastlake uh, uh, doubly interesting. But to get to the answer to your question, both Bob Jones and Alexa were sickly kids. Bob Jones couldn't hold down solid food until uh, he was about age five or six. And so they thought he was going to die. His predecessor brother did die in infancy uh, from, from the same uh, gastrointestinal uh, problem. 
So his parents, the Colonel Jones and and, and uh, Clara, were scared to death they were going to lose Bob. And so they took him out to the park out of town and took his shoes and socks off and said, go for it, and turned him out to pasture. And he thrived. He built a two-hole uh, golf course on the dirt street in front of Mrs. Metter's house, right? Uh, they uh, occupied a cabin that she had uh, on her property. And he dug one hole in one part of the red clay of the street and another, and he played back and forth. And somebody said, uh, how many holes in one did you ever make? He said, really, I only made two, but I made a, a bunch of holes in one on my little golf course that I've been, you know. Uh, uh, but Alexa had the same uh, physical uh, problem. And uh, that's why Dr. Alex Sterling uh, took her out there, you know, to swim in the, in the pond and, and uh, recreate and, and try to, to thrive, which they did. And of course, um, uh, uh, Mrs. Metter had a son. And so he joined the group and uh, Alexa really won her first golf tournament when she was age nine. Uh, Bob was uh, almost six, and Miss Metters had a little uh, kiddish cup, silver kiddish cup, that she offered as a trophy for a tournament that was going to be Harry Adair, Bob, Alexa, and Frank Metter, her son. And uh, Alexa won. You know, she posted the lowest score, uh, but the boys got together and said, we can't let a girl win the championship. And so they gave the trophy to Bob. And he felt very uh, sheepishly about it, but he said, I took it. I took it anyway and, uh, and slept with it and put it under his pillow. But uh, Alexa never squawked about it, never said a word. To, uh, you know, just took it on the chin, and that was just the kind of person she was. That, that's, again, another example of, of why I find her so fascinating um, in, in that uh, those stories started to add up, and, and then you, you read all these uh, accounts and, and no one really um, reflects as much on, on her ability. And uh, I, I got to see footage of her swing. I think it might've been a later swing, but in the archives of the USGA. And this was a very powerful golf swing. Um, even, even your comment about the, the right leg, it, 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 if you watch it, it looks like it's firing forward versus, you know, that post on the left leg, like so many of us do now. Um, it, and remember, she was only 5'3", 110 pounds. She hit it 200 to 220. Um, to give you an idea, nobody, no woman, had, uh, had conquered the number 17, 376-yard uh, uh, par 5 hole, really, for them at Cherry Valley in Long Island. No, nobody had ever done that. So in 1927, Alexa was the first woman to hit an iron into the hole on her second swing. First one. So you can imagine, uh, and she was deadly accurate. You know, uh, Stuart Maiden got a hold of her and said, you know, if she'd leave that dashed fiddle alone, she'd be a hell of a golfer. But, uh, but you know, she had other interests. And uh, she she was able to... Uh, swing ear to ear, which was what Stuart Maiden 
taught. Remember, uh, you could tell back in the turn of the century who was from St. Andrews and who was from Carnoustie. And the reason is, it's out of bounds at St. Andrews on the way out and on the way in. And so the, the smart play is to hook your shot, low, flat swing, right to left, every, every swing, and hit the ball in the middle. Carnoustie has jockey's burn and Barry's burn weaving through it. So you've got to hit an upright swing with cut so that the ball doesn't run into the burn. You want to hit it and make it stop. So, you know, people would look over and they would say, hey, I, I see uh, Stuart Maiden is here today. You know, because, you know, he had that swing. He had the Carnoustie swing. And Amazing. They, that kid, Bob Jones. Jones had copied him, mimicked him just like a monkey. And, um, and it was so perfect. And so did Alexa. Uh, she, she got that ear-to-ear -ear swing, but was able to work the ball, you know, right to left, left to right, and, uh, and really stick it. But um, she was deadly accurate with the putter. She had that eye-hand coordination that Bob had, and uh, she just was eagle-eyed. You know, she, she would be hitting 18 to 20 putts. Everybody else would hit, be, be hitting 30 to 34 putts. And so, you know, she'd wipe them out with her putter. And, uh, you know, as Walter Hagen said, three of those and one of those is still four. And, uh, and Stuart Maiden taught her, don't give up if you hit it, you know, in the, in the junk, uh, in the bunkers or, or in the rough, uh, stone it and make the putt. And so, you know, both of them had that uh, killer instinct that uh, is just very hard to teach. Some of the accounts had uh, Stuart Maiden referred to um, in, in the articles with uh, an uncannily successful junior golf program. You know, at a time when golf is uh, beginning to boom, and uh, his name was listed right next to the uh, was the Dixie Wiz kids was the yeah the Dixie Wiz kids sure sure but imagine Alex Smith, the first uh, immigrant from uh, Carnoustie who came over and was terribly successful. Uh, Jerome Travers was one of his students, who was national champion, and. Uh, he ended up teaching uh, Jimmy and had uh, another student uh, who was uh, named Glenna Collette, who just happened to be six-time winner of the Women's uh, Amateur Championship. And, of course, um, who was uh, her idol? Alexa Sterling, because Alexa comes on and she wins the, you know, the three-peat, 1916, 1919, 1920. And ultimately, Glenna Collette is the one who beat Alexa. Hmm. So the whole world uh, traveled in a circle. And the circle was around Alex Smith at Eastlake. The, that, that whole Alex Smith, the Smith family, uh, you know, even up here, our clubs in Chicago and Wisconsin, it's there needs to be a family tree that ties all these clubs together. I'm sure it exists somewhere, but um, 
I just, I just love that as an aside. I just think if you want to feel connected to the origins of the game, look at where your club pro, you know, back in the early turn of the century, it came from and, and all of it kind of makes sense. But uh, I, I wanted to, to ask you about um, specifically the Dixie Wiz kids and uh, it's these red cross matches. So uh, Bob mentioned them a lot. Alexa mentioned them a lot. Um, what, what, tell us about these red cross matches. And if I'm not mistaken, Alexa didn't want to do them, uh, but it, it was, she had to be on the ticket, you know, for it to really be a success. So it, give us an understanding of, of what these matches meant during the time that the, these came up and, and they traveled together playing uh, in front of what, what looked to be pretty massive audiences. Well, with, uh, the Red Cross needed money, you know, because of the war effort. And uh, so they figured out what we can do is uh, is pit uh, amateurs against amateurs and professionals. And people will come out to watch it. Uh, and what they would do is hold a party. And then at the party, they would auction off the players. And uh, so they would have all these uh, rich guys who would uh, buy uh, one of the players and, and, uh, and caddy for them. They would actually caddy for them, uh, but they traveled to, uh, Chicago and played Chicago with a hotbed of, uh, golf confusion back then, you know, Blair McDonald and, um, uh, you know, Chicago golf and, uh, pretty amazing. Uh, all of the, the people, Chuck Hutchison who, who came from there and, uh, numerous other famous players. And, uh, and then they went east and played up the coast, you know, played in, in Boston. They played Braeburn. Uh, uh, Braeburn is where Bob Jones uh, decorated the tree with his putter. And Alexa said, Bob, can we just play golf? That's really what got him right there at Braeburn. <clears throat> but they, they played uh, those uh, various matches. Uh, they raised $150,000 in those 12 to 15 matches. And they were playing against people like Cyril Walker, U.S. Open champion, you know, 1921. Yeah, so they had, uh, you know, Chick Evans, who was also the famous uh, golfer from Chicago uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, Western Amateur was there, uh, was played there and was a major championship back in the day. Uh, so... Uh, these these kids uh, not only did that, but later uh, Bob Jones played in innumerable uh, exhibition matches, and in World War II, they even had a faux Ryder Cup professional amateur uh, tournament. Walter Hagen captained the the uh, professional side, you know, and and so the amateurs played. Uh, against the professionals, but Alexa was involved in all of these exhibitions, um, you know, that where money went to charity. Uh, and I think they also had uh, some that Bob played for the library in, uh, in Highlands. He played exhibitions there. Uh, and Alexa played in a lot of the, the various exhibitions for charity. Yeah. These, these charity, exhibitions i mean it, you know we're we're kind of going back to a day and age of exhibitions in a way and uh some of them are just cash grabs and others are, are i guess for charity but um i i i would imagine at this time 
there was fairly strict gender roles. And so it, it, I found it interesting. I know there was a letter from, gosh, was it someone trying to convince Alexa to, to be a part of this and how you know, it was needed for the war effort. And, uh, and she, she surely did it, but why there was such a, a push for the, uh, the ladies to be involved. I mean, you listed quite a few of them. Um, but at that time was, was it just that they were all so young and talented that that was the draw, uh, or or what was it about her or or the the women that were involved in this that um, made it work? Well, the you know the uh, golf was becoming popular. A lot of uh, men's clubs were being formed, um, but if you're if you're going to go watch golf, you need to have your wife with you, and she's probably not interested in watching some grumpy old guys play golf, but these kids. Yeah. You've got their attention now. Interesting. And so it became, it became uh, like a fair and they all dressed up and they had parasols and they had long dresses and, and everybody came out uh, and it was a grand uh, uh, affair uh, that everybody wanted to be a part of. Um, and you know, they were living uh, vicariously through these uh, sports people, the boys and the girls. And, you, and so when the economic downturns came, you know, in 1930 was part of the Depression. People were in soup lines. And so they needed a hero or a heroine to live vicariously through. And that's what these... Uh, famous characters uh, did is they provided the vehicle to transport you from your misery into something grand and something you could identify with. And that was uh, golf. It was a gentleman's sport, a gentle person's sport, gentle women and women and men. I want to also ask you about Alexis travels to England um, and Scotland. I think, the golf's world premiership was uh, the only, the, maybe the only one that I could document, but was she, I, I mean, Bob Jones, his impact on the game over there is uh, another thing that really feels me, makes me connected to uh, my, my trips in Scotland is that the reverence that they had for him um, well documented, uh, documented by yourself said, uh, but what was Alexa afforded the same, you know, opportunities that Bob was over there to come represent American golf? Uh, more than that. Um, uh, Alexa showed up in 1921. And uh, in, uh, in 1921, uh, the Open was held at St. Andrews. Uh, Jock Hutchison was the ultimate uh, playoff winner against uh, Roger Weatherid, who was an amateur. And Bob Jones came over age 19 and played in his first British Open. And, you, and he played with Jock Hutchison, the eventual winner. So imagine he's playing beautifully, uh, but he comes to the third round. And he went out in, in about 46, which was tanking and came to the 10th hole that is now named for him, bogeyed it, came to the 11th par three, and hit his ball in Hill Bunker, not Strath, Hill, 
and took about four or five swipes at it, and the ball came out in his pocket. He then asked his uh, scorer for a scorecard, tore it into little tiny shreds and threw it in the Eden River, asked his – he did not storm off the course, as a lot of people reported. Instead, he asked his caddy for his driver. He drove off the 12th, finished the match, but he had withdrawn and would have been the second blow amateur next to Roger Weatherid, but for what he called the most inglorious failure of my golfing career, quitting. In Great Britain, you, you have a stiff upper lip, you keep quiet and carry on, and you never, ever give up. Never, ever, ever give up. And uh, that was Sir Winston Churchill's mantra. But Bob went down in blazes in the British press, and they said, well, this boy, this Dixie Whiz kid from Atlanta, uh, apparently he's a boy and an ordinary boy after all. So you, he went home with his tail between his legs. Alexa showed up. Now, she had beaten Dorothy uh, Campbell Hurd from Scotland. Dorothy Campbell was a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. He won uh, something like five uh, uh, British and American amateur championships. Uh, she was uh, a tour de force. And Alexa beat her and helped to encourage her, uh, you know, Alexa, you need to come to Great Britain and play in our tournament, the ladies amateur. No American had ever won it. You know, you had to wait till Babes Arias in 48. Saying so. Wow. So uh, she shows up and uh, is so charming that Bernard Darwin and Peter Ride and all of the uh, uh, sports writers over there are going, wow, look at this polished, erudite, scholarly, uh, beautiful player. And, uh, you know, she, she was not used to playing in uh, horizontal rain. And, and, we, we packed just, it over here. It yeah. absolutely yeah. just stormed. Yes. You know, uh, uh, Andrew uh, Brooke from St. George's, uh, we had a, uh, I thought it was a gale force win. I came in after playing at St. George one time and I said, Andrew, it's blowing a gale out there. He said, No, Sydney, you'll know it's blowing a gale when the sheep are holding on to the heather with their teeth. And that's what the way it was when Alexa showed up. So uh, she showed absolute aplomb, uh, went out, uh, did not uh, win, uh, but won a lot of admiration uh, uh, in the press. And uh, whereas Bob uh, got, you know, the other treatment. And it, was, it goes to show you, once again, that, you know, Alexa arrived much earlier than did Bob Joe. What would you say is Alexa's uh, greatest competitive uh, golf competitive uh, feat? Well, um, let's 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 just look at uh, what Alexa did uh, in the in the U.S. Women's Amateur. 
Now she won a lot of regional tournaments and whatever, right? But in the in the U.S. Women's Amateur, she won in 1916, 1919, and 1920, three in a row. She was runner-up in 1921 to Marion Hollins, an ultimate winner. In 1923, Edith Cummings, an ultimate winner. And 1925 to Gwenna Collette, six-time winner. So three times runner-up, three times winner. She was medalist in 1919, 1923, and 1925. 1925, medalist was 77. And you're talking using garden implements, these hickory-shafted clubs with these hand-forged heads. You didn't know if the sweet spot was, if the center of gravity was in the sweet spot, on the heel, in the toe, or wherever. Uh, you just had to kind of figure it out. And she won the Southern Amateur. Uh, uh, three times Southern Amateur Champion. She won the Metropolitan Ladies Championship in New York when she was a bond trader. She won it twice in 1922, 1923. Then she married uh, Dr. Frazier, uh, Will Frazier, and uh, in 1925, went to Ottawa, Canada. She won the Canadian Amateur uh, twice. Uh, no, runner. she was three times winner of the Canadian Amateur, runner-up twice. Hmm. She was 13 times club champion at the Ottawa Country Club. So that's not a bad uh, resume for somebody who, you know, has a full-time family uh, and is doing all of these other uh, things, uh, you know, outside the sport, uh, which was just something else that she did. And I think that that is part of the real extraordinary thing about about her uh, uh, her character. But uh, to answer your question, one of the greatest feats that she uh, gave to us as a legacy was in 1950 when it was the 50-year uh, golden anniversary of the of the amateur women's amateur, and East Lake was hosting it, and so. Bob Jones and and his uh, Atlanta Athletic Club uh, asked Alexa if she would come from Ottawa to play in the tournament and for old time's sake. And so she agreed to do it. And uh, that's when she met Bob Jones and she had left him, you know, in uh, robust shape and found that here is Bob Jones who has suffered this uh, spinal disease, syringomyelia, uh, that... Uh, put him in uh, one cane to two canes to one leg brace to two leg braces to a wheelchair to a 90-pound, uh, you know, hunk of clay. And uh, uh, so she shows up to play, and she uh, comes to her match with, uh, it was Betty uh, McKinnon. And uh, Betty is like four up. And Alexa starts playing and catches her at 18. And Alexa has got to make this putt. It's about a 12-footer. Uh, and if she makes it and Betty misses, she wins the match. Alexa looks down at her putt, knocks it right in the hole. Reaches over, grabs Betty's ball, hands it to her and says, you win. I'm done. 
I've, and Patty Berg was watching the match and she turned to Patty and she said, this is their time now. I've had my time. Wow. Wow. That is Alexis Sterling. That's a, that's a wonderful uh, story. I didn't find that one uh, anywhere. And it's just, uh, I think, I think the thing that I uh, gravitated to, there, there's so much of her competitive, uh, competitive career. That's, that's very telling, but um, these hobbies, I want to revisit all these other things. She was a bond trader in New York. She was uh, a very accomplished violinist. And, and when I think about our golf society and, you know, we go out there and we, we compete and we have, some phenomenal golfers who compete in our gross division. And we have some, you know, spirited golfers who compete in our net divisions, but um, th they are doctors and they're lawyers and they're teachers and professors and uh, they live other lives. Uh, golf is a big part of their life. They want to, to, it makes them feel alive. I think when we're out there competing for these um, trophies and titles and championships, but it's not, our full life. And I think that's what I really uh, saw in her that made me think of all of our members was the accomplishment and achievement of golf, but all these other things that make, made her who she was. That's really, I think, um, what's so fitting for her to be on our, our champion's belt. I, I like the quote. I think it was uh, the, the, it might've been the 19, 1920s Eastlake to celebrate their their joint accomplishments, Bobby and, and Alexa. And Bob said she wields the bow with equally as much skill as the mashie. Um, you know, just, just things like that uh, to be so well-rounded and to have so much perspective and remember that it is just a game. Brantland Rice wrote a quatrain that was on Bob Jones' wall. When the one great scorer comes to write against your name, he writes not whether you won or lost, but how you played the game. And of course, you know, in Plato's Republic, uh, those who loved the sport, played for fun, not for money, were the heroes uh, to be emulated. And of course, you know, in Great Britain, that was the ethic. Uh, you, uh, you had a job, you had a family, you had uh, outside interests, you had charities, you had the church. And uh, golf was a sport, but not a life unto itself. And so uh, they uh, looked at it as, you know, not a uh, profession. It wasn't until Alan Robertson came along that uh, they had a professional at the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews, right? Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, and then, you know, things changed. Uh, when uh, Walter Hagen uh, left his uh, post, he won the Open in 1919 against uh, my teacher, uh, Mike Brady. Uh, uh, but he decided that he was going to be a golf exhibitionist and not attached to any golf club. So, you know, he then... Uh, established a touring professional status. And then, of course, that has morphed into, you know, the professional sport that we see today. Uh, but uh, there, there was a point at which the Americans 
went to Great Britain from 1921 to, to 1934, and they monopolized the championship, except for 1923 when Arthur Habers won. The Americans won every tournament for that period of time, which is absolutely remarkable. And the question that was uh, bandied about in, in all of the uh, golf press uh, was, why are the Americans, you know, monopolizing our championship. And Hagen once said, well, you know, because we practice. You guys don't practice. And we're better putters than you. And, of course, you know, that started uh, what I call the American avalanche, you know, that uh, that the Americans um, had a uh, uh, tremendous time winning the favor of the British people who were a little bit miffed that we kept swiping their cup every year. Wasn't until Henry Cotton won in 1934 that they restored the cup to Great Britain. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of our uh, players who went over uh, grew up as caddies. They were not well-educated. They dropped out of school in grade school. Uh, you know, Hagen had the sixth, uh, uh, fourth grade education, fifth grade education. You know, he he, he wasn't well educated. But along comes people like Alexa Sterling and Bob Jones. And, you know, Bob Jones was able to discourse with the uh, uh, landed gentry in the clubhouse. He was permitted because he was an amateur. Professionals were not permitted in the clubhouse. But he was able to discourse on Sir Walter Scott's Heart of Midlothian, Jeannie Deans, who saved her sister, you know, from the gallows uh, when she went to uh, Princess Caroline uh, and begged for her sister to be released. She was accused of uh, killing her kid in the crib, crib death, because it was a girl, not a boy. And they were killing all the girls. And uh, it, it was the... Uh, uh, midwife that killed the, the baby. And uh, Jeannie Deans was the heroine. Bob Jones named his driver after you, to give you an idea. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so you, you know, and he, he had a degree in English literature. So uh, he was able to carry himself. And even though, and, and the one endearing thing uh, was that after his inglorious failure in 1921, he came back. He didn't just put his tail between his legs and never come back. He came back and, you know, redeemed himself. Uh, it was a redemption story in 1926 at Roll Witham in St. Anne's and then uh, def successfully defended at St. Andrews in 1927. And then, of course, he won the Grand Slam at Hoy Lake and, and St. Andrews. But uh, they, uh, Jones, Sterling, Glenna Collette, uh, you know, those old timers uh, were able to uh, carry on uh, this old ethic, you know, the universal person, homo universalis, the universal man or universal woman, someone who, who takes in the arts and the sport and everything, you know, and lives a full and robust life. Uh, you know, that, that I think is what we're talking about. And these are old concepts. You know, today is that's like talking Greek. Uh, 
because now it's mano a mano, winner take all. Uh, you know, Phil Mickelson beats Tiger for seven million. Uh, it's all about the money. Yeah, and yes. um, and that that's why uh, you know we. Um, that's why I think people are kind of uh, mildly interested in in hundred year old. Uh, what was going on there? I, I, I really do think that's it, Sid. Is is my my own interest is right around that is that these are amateurs um, playing the, the game um, for more the the soulful reasons or the pure reasons or the uh, not just the conquest and uh, not for payment but for uh, the joy that that they and others receive from it. And my my last question for you was uh, on Alexa is if you had a, a quote from Bob that um, you felt summed her up best. I, I know he said uh, many things about her. Uh, there's the letters that you shared that he sent to her. You could, you could clearly see this is a, a peer to peer situation. You know, we're talking about the grand slam winner writing to her um, as if she were uh, his equal or superior. And, and I, I loved seeing those letters. Uh, I think Alexa in her uh, one note said uh, Bob was a dogged perfectionist. I thought that was a, a great way to describe him. Um, but was there a way that he described her with their close knit relationship that you, that kind of sticks with you? Well, he he uh, he had a, a saying that was uh, golf is in many ways a reflection of life itself. Uh, you could be a, a, an actor in a, a comedy. You can be a, a dogged victim of inexorable fate. Uh, you can be a clown in a side-splitting comedy. But at the end of the day, you don't have to repair a tangled personality, you know. And uh, and and I I think Bob's uh, uh, view of Alexa was she was just about the finest that we had to offer, which uh, you know it, it's not easy. Uh, and here, um, you know, Bob Jones has gone around and around with a lot of different people. And he said some of the uh, so-called great people can be pretty stinking, and some of the uh, salt of the earth can be the greatest people in the world. And I think that that's basically his view, that Alexa was uh, really his role model uh, on civility, sportsmanship, and that that is the greatest uh, takeaway. Uh, and you no, know, he, he, uh, he, he, I think he, he wished that, uh, he had come to, uh, the end point a lot sooner, but, uh, imagine, uh, his career was only 14 years. Um, hers was less and uh you know once once he uh put away the the clubs uh he then wrote five books did the warner brothers movies uh 
founded uh, the Spalding line of clubs that did have the center of gravity in the sweet spot throughout the set. First time ever, um, you know, and and became the ambassador of golf, uh, which Alexa was. Uh, she she was really that kind of kind of person, but they were they were so close in that uh, both of them were genuinely modest, self-deprecating, uh, did not have to dine out on their accomplishments. Um, you know, uh, Ralph McGill of the of the uh, Atlanta Journal uh, had a had a great saying, and he uh, he he said. Uh, you know, it's amazing uh, what you can accomplish if you're willing to give the other person all the credit. Uh, and uh, Bob Jones never, and Alexa, never dined out on their own accomplishments and tried to stuff their shirt with them. Hmm. Pretty poignant. I, I, I think it's a... Uh... Ah, I just want it's I'm so happy that you've shared so much on her and Bob with with us today, because I, I hope people that are listening get the sense, particularly those that are a part of our community in Atlanta, get the sense of the importance because Atlanta is such a golf town. And uh, just talking to you, Sid, the few times that we have and, and now um, reading up more and more, it doesn't seem like it would have been the golf town that it is if it's not for these two. Well, isn't it isn't it interesting that um, it took till 1978 for Alexa to be inducted into the uh, Georgia Sports Hall of Fame, and she is uh, she. It took her till 1989 to be inducted into the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame, and it took until 2021. It's going to be 2022 for her to be inducted into the World Golf. Hall of Fame. So we're all a little slow in coming to these reasons about, you know, um, who who is the greatest. Uh, but once again, um, it's not uh, who won the game. It's, uh, it's how you played the game. That's what counts. That's, that's the message we're going to... That might be the title of this, Sydney. It's how you play the game. Um, it's Grantland Rice. When the I, one scorer comes to write against your name, he writes not whether you won or lost, how you played the game. What will be, last Alexa uh, comment for you, what, what will be the um, involvement you'll have with her entry into the World Golf Hall of Fame? I see that beautiful picture of her sitting behind your shoulder as we chat now. Uh, are you going to be providing things for the hall or, or what will you do? Uh, well, I uh, was approached by uh, the Atlanta Athletic Club, who is uh, sponsoring uh, her induction, and uh, uh, I gave them uh, a, a ream of support. Uh, I've written uh, fairly extensively on Alexa uh, and uh, have a pretty extensive archive of original uh, photos, letters, other things. And um, they are using my the chapter in Champions of uh, Eastlake uh, as, as the basis for the nomination. Um, so, and I, I have um, 
uh, a little um, uh, thought that uh, a lot of this stuff would be uh, very helpful to give to the uh, World Golf Hall of Fame uh, to support her nomination. That's wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing it with us, Sydney. I'm, I'm excited to hear that uh, that will be happening and, and this story will be shared with so many more. Um, I do have, before I let you go today, I have one more thing for you. We do it for all our guests. Uh, it's not a pass fail or it's not, it's not a graded exam. No, no pass fail, but, uh, it's called the 19th soul. Especially when we have someone of your golfing acumen and intellect on the show, we, we got to get you through the 19th soul questionnaire. Uh, but it's 18 questions that we adapted from the 35 questions of Marcel Proust, the French novelist, one of the most influential authors of the 20th century. His questions were trying to reveal the truest nature of the individual. Our questions are, are attempting to reveal the soul of the golfer. So, Sidney Matthew, are you ready? I don't know that you're ever ready for the gallows. <laughs> well, here we go. Number one, when were you the happiest as a golfer? I was happiest as a golfer when I uh, received my first Sam Snead Blue Ridge putter at the Cookville Country Club uh, at about age five. And uh, it came out of a barrel. And my little brother uh, also had a, a rusty old putter. And we uh, waited till everybody teed off. Uh, Hubie Smith and and uh, and uh, Bobby Greenwood and uh, our dad had given us uh, some old uh, a lot of balls that had been cut. They had a big old cut in them, big smile. And when everybody teed off, there were only about five or six foursomes at that golf club. And when we teed off. We jumped out of the pool and ran over to the putting green because we were not allowed on the putting green. And I uh, uh, committed my first act of larceny <laughs> and slipped into the bag room and reached into Bobby Greenwood's bag and got a brand new Max Flag golf ball. And I went back and I started putting into the hole with that new ball. And Hubie uh, Smith, the pro, famous golfer in Tennessee, was he teed off first and showed up first because he wanted to give back to the pro shop. He saw me with that ball. He said, boy, where'd you get that ball? I said, I found it. He said, you're lying to me, boy. I'm telling your daddy. And my daddy spanked me, boy. <laughs> he gave it to me. Uh, and uh, I just... Uh, shared that with uh, Bobby Greenwood. Bobby's about 82, still going strong, Hall of Fame, Tennessee uh, hero. And uh, uh, he said, when are you going to give me my ball back? It's the most <laughs> fun that I had. I love it. I love it. Uh, number two, what's the scariest shot in golf? Uh, actually, Groucho Marx was the one who answered that. He said, the scariest shot in golf is when you shank a three iron off a par three. It hits a tree, bounds into the, into the river, hits a rock, 
jumps up and goes in the hole. He said, it's so scary. I've only done it one time. <laughs> uh, those are your first two answers. I'm excited for the rest of this questionnaire. Uh, number, number three, um, what is your go-to order at the halfway house? Uh, the go-to order generally is a ginger beer and Angostura bitters. Now that is a proper links golfer. Cause they it probably isn't a halfway house though. That might be the uh, end of a round, right? Yeah. They, uh, they, uh, they don't have, well, you know what? Uh, there, there is a caravan uh, on, right by the 10th uh, tee at St. Andrews. So you can pop over. It's right on. Yeah. It's on the new course side. Oh, okay. Um, and you can actually pop over and you can get a ginger beer with Angostura bitters. They carry it. Interesting. I'm going to do that. I'll be there in May. I will take you up on that. And of course, the reason for that is that that is a digestive and will calm your stomach down from misbehavior the prior evening. I, I have, this might tell too much. Try it. It's, 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 it's a beautiful drink. I've become a big ginger beer fan for that very reason. Put Angostura bitters in and you got it. Interesting. Number four, what is the trait you most deplore in your own golf game? Uh, it, it that that would be uh, probably uh, trying to hit a one iron. That would probably be trying to hit a one iron. And the reason that why you would do that is uh, uh, because you your woods are failing you. So you know, uh, but I I I think that's the worst thing you can do because it's it's um, it's either uh, hero or goat. Not yet. Out of bounds. It's either out of bounds or it's perfect. Yeah, not a whole lot of margin for error. No, Trevino was right about that. Number five, what is the quality you most look for in your playing partners? Never give up. Uh, and um, a true sportsman will never lay down. Hmm. Bob Jones said... Um, I, I want to be able to say when I beat you that you tried as hard as you could and you were on the best game that you ever had. And um, he excoriated uh, Chick Evans one time uh, when Chick sidled up and he said, Chick gave me that toothy grin and said, Bob, now let's not worry about who wins. Let's just have a good time today. And he said, Chick, I want to beat your brains out and but I want you to to know that you're playing the very best that you can, and that you a good sportsman will never lay down. So uh, that would be it. Number six. What is the trait you most deplore in other golfers? That that uh, the 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 golf game is the uh, the most important thing in their existence that they have sold out to the game. I think, you know, and you see those people, uh, the Brits call it card and pencil. They don't have card and pencil over there. You know, you, you play against your man, you play against the, the golf course, and it is impolite to say, what did you shoot? It's, it's um, did you have a good day? Sydney, how was your day? Did you have a good day? It's not what did you shoot. You do not say that overseas. <laughs> yeah. 
But here, it's what'd you shoot? What'd you shoot? Everybody wants to know what you shot. Yeah. Who cares? You know, I'm not six feet under. I'm having a great time. <laughs> Number seven, what words or phrases do you most overuse on the golf course? It went in. <laughs> That's a good one to be overusing. I'm glad for you. That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, number eight, what golfing talent would you most want to have? Patience. It would have to be patience. You try, you know, uh, it's, it's called the uh, bogey rebound from a birdie. You know, all of a sudden, when you think that you have conquered the game, then you're in trouble. When you think, you know, you come home, uh, don't tell everybody that you had eight or nine one putts. Don't tell anybody that. You remember Bob Jones shot the course record uh, uh, 62. And the next day he said, I had to work my full head off to shoot 79 and break it the very next day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this next question I know will be a tough one for you. Maybe it won't, but uh, with a man of your collect collections that you possess, number nine is what is your most treasured golf possession? My most treasured golf possession is the gold buttons that Bob Jones wore on his RNA blazer. His grandson, Bob Jones the fourth. Dr. Bob Jones gave me the buttons from his dad's RNA blazer that were Bob Jones's buttons. And they're all now on my RNA blazer. Wow. I was I was in the big room and Sandy Rutherford, the venerable former town counselor, who proposed that the 10th hole be named Bobby Jones. And they passed the resolution, and today it is. But I showed Sandy those buttons, and he said, Sydney, these are the old buttons. You know, Bob had been made uh, a honorary member, uh, uh, and then he was made a regular member. He was both. Uh, but they dated back to 38. And uh, so I would say, uh, those are my most, most prized possessions. They're Bobby Jones's gold blazer buttons. That is, um, I, a lot of shows we've done over a hundred shows. I've never had that, uh, answer. That is, um, a very personal, awesome thing there. Said. Now, Sandy, Sandy said, Sydney, you need to take some fish, on, you know, yeah. monofilament. And re-sew the buttons because people will come over and try and grab them off your off your your blazer. Mm. I said, Andy, come on. He goes, Don't you try it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, making the turn here. Number 10. What's the one thing in your golf bag you should throw out? About uh five irons. <laughs> you gotta go to the it's a very hipster thing now, Sydney. People going with their half sets and the short set. yeah 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 uh, you know chick evans had seven clubs yeah he was pretty good alexa alexa had 15 bob jones had 34 34 clubs in his bag that howard rexford carried in 1930 
No kidding. All kinds of clubs. Was this before there was a limit? Yeah. Yeah. They, wow. they, they didn't have a limit until uh, 30s. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know yeah, that. the 14 club rule came in in the 30s. He had 34 clubs in his bag. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, um, who was it? Um, uh, well, Erie Ball, uh, Tommy Barnes, a lot of the people at Eastlake would uh, would go over to Bob's uh, bag and they'd take a club out and waggle it. And um, I think Gene Sarazen did that. And he, he got uh, one of Bob Jones's clubs. So Bob would say, take it. Bob gave away more clubs than, than, than uh, Carter had pills. I mean, it was unbelievable. But he went through hundreds of golf clubs. He just, he loved to test them. And um, when he replaced his set, um, they uh, figured out what the swing weight and dead weight was. They were all within a whisker of each other that he did by feel. Going through hundreds of clubs, and he picked sixteen uh, that that uh, that he used uh, in many of the tournaments, and they were within a whisker of dead weight and swing weight. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, number twelve. Have you ever asked another golfer for their autograph? Almost every uh, tournament, we have to get their autograph. So the answer is yes. Now that's the intellect I was looking for. You're right. I mean, if we're playing a, a round, even a posted round, well, that might have been changed by the USGA and the RNA, but we, we do require autographs. Just what's say your it. favorite? What's your what's your favorite you've got? Just say it. What favorite autograph? Yeah. Uh, well, I I have uh, maybe a book of autographs of uh, various people, including Bob Jones and, and Walter Hagen, and uh, you know, I I go for the uh, uh, golden age of golf, but um, uh, we were at the uh, golf writers' dinner, and uh, there was Greg Norman, and my wife was with me, and she said, "I want you to go get Greg Norman's autograph." I said, "You go get his autograph." I said, "He'd be more receptive to you than to me." Oh, come on, come on, come on! So he was sitting with Ben Crenshaw, and I know Ben, so I went over and I said, "Ben, how are you doing?" And, and um, I said, uh, Greg, and my wife really wants your autograph, but she's too timid to ask for it. And so he laughed, and they they signed the, the autograph. So uh, roll forward a few years. Tiger Woods is coming in to get uh, the uh, trophy, uh, the, the Player of the Year award. And um, his deal was that he would show up, but he had to go on first because he wanted to get out and go prepare for the next day at the, at the Masters. So my wife said, go get Tiger's autograph. I said, I ain't going to get Tiger's autograph. You go get Tiger's autograph. She goes, go get his autograph. So I walked up, and, and, and the, the dais is empty. It's just Tiger sitting there waiting for the thing to start. And I said, Tiger, my, uh, you don't know me, but my wife wants your autograph, and I'd be so grateful. If you. He said, I'm not giving any autographs. I said, oh, I didn't know, but he had sold his right to the autograph people for a million five. And so he couldn't sign anything. Back and I said, I struck out, sorry. So I nipped off to the loo. And as I'm walking to the loo, um, 
Tiger has received the award. I went out the back and he, they put him on, gave him the award and he was coming out the side door. So our paths were crossing and this lady came up with this little kid and, and said, Tiger, my son really wants your autograph. He said, I'm not giving autographs. He cut his car and left. So I didn't, I did not get that on. A little different than the Arnie treatment or others. Now, Arnold Palmer, my son is like uh, 15, 14. And uh, we went to Augusta, took him to Augusta. And uh, Arnold Palmer birdies the last hole on number 18 to miss the cut by one. And so I asked Dan Yates, green coat member uh, on 18, Dan, do you think Jeffrey could get Arnold's autograph? And he says, sure. So he grabs Arnold and we're standing back behind the green and he brings Arnold over uh, behind the ropes. And, he, and so we're standing there and he shakes hand with Jeffrey and then there's a little ring of people that come around us, you know? And he goes, Jeffrey, how are you doing? He goes, great. He goes, uh, hey, son, are you uh, playing golf? He goes, yes, sir, I'm, star I'm playing golf. And I, he said, well, uh, are you practicing? You got to practice if you're going to be good. He said, oh, yes, sir, I'm practicing. He said, now, are you doing your studies? Because you'll never be anybody unless you do your studies. Said, yes, sir, I'm, I'm doing his studies. Okay, well, uh, well, uh, uh, way to go, son. And, uh, and by that time, everybody's around us, just Jeffrey and, and Arnold. And so he said, well, Jeffrey, have a good time. We'll see. Okay, Mr. Palmer, I'll see you. So Jeffrey writes Arnold Palmer a letter. Dear Mr. Palmer, greatest thrill of my life going to the Masters. And then you sign my uh, autograph. And uh, I'll never forget it. Arnold writes him back. Dear Jeffrey, remember what I told you, son. Make sure if you want to be good at golf that you practice and make sure that you do your studies if you want to be somebody in life, signed Arnold Palmer. Wow. Jeffrey got the best autograph I've seen. That's a good autograph story. Uh, it's amazing what that man was able to, how he could he was the, life. He was the real deal. No doubt about it. He, he wrote the uh, foreword to my forthcoming book on life and times of Walter Hagen. Hmm. And, and, uh, and the, the quick story, uh, making a short story even longer, Walter Hagen uh, was at Long Lake in Traverse City, Michigan, and Doris Brandes, his, uh, his uh, companion, went out to check his boat. He was going out in the boat to make sure there was no booze in it because he was forbidden to drink. Uh, he was trying to, they were trying to dry him out. And so he got in the boat and he went around the lake and he went to Little Bo's Tavern and got happy. And Arnold Palmer won the, the open right on the telly, right on the TV. And, and so uh, Walter is three sheets and he says, I think call the champion. So he called the, the clubhouse and they brought Arnold Palmer to the phone. And he, he, uh, you know, uh, uh, congratulated Arnold, uh, and they became fast friends. Amazing. And um, so, uh, uh, and Arnold, uh, you know, just uh, idolized Hagen. He thought he was a cat's meow. And um, and he even uh, uh, went, uh, was pallbearer at Walter Hagen's funeral. So Arnold... Uh, graciously uh, wrote the introduction telling that story 
which will come out in my uh, new book on Walter Hagen when it comes out. Well, we might need to have you back on for that one. Soon. That, that, I know there's plenty of more stories on that. Uh, I, ju I just wrote the 100 best, believe it or not, Walter Hagen stories. The best 100 stories. All right. Yeah. Which, believe it or not. You know? oh, that's great. Uh, this next one, I love asking historians and golf writers like yourself. Um, but number 13 is, what historical golf figure do you most relate to? You know, the uh, Walter Higgins' caddy, Skip Daniels, uh, is uh, a, a little-known story, but uh, an incredible story. Uh, Walter Hagen won uh, the British uh, four times. And the first uh, couple of times, Skip Daniels was his caddy. And Skip was in World War I, and he was gassed with mustard gas, and uh, they took him over to the railroad tracks to put him on the ambulance truck uh, car. And a bomb blew up the tracks and came down and crashed his bones and busted him up really good. And he, he convalesced on the southern shores of England uh, and became a caddy. That's about all he could do. And he carried the uh, clubs under his arm like a rifle. Um, and, uh, but he, he was very shrewd and, uh, he knew the golf courses, uh, Royal St. George, Prince's, uh, Royal St. Ports, knew, knew them like the back of his hand. And, uh, Gene Sarazen, fresh young kid, uh, won the open in, uh, in, uh, 22 and, and, uh, he, Walter Hagen said, you'll never be a golfer unless you go to Great Britain and play in the open. So he says, okay, fine. So they're, they're uh, on the ship and they're, uh, they're in their cups uh, during dinner. And, uh, and Walter said, Gene, I think it's great that you're, you know, making your bones and, and coming over and, you know, doing what you need to do to, to try to be a better golfer. And, and he said, what are you talking about? I'm going to win. He said, what? He goes, Gene, come on now. He said, you know, uh, you're you're not ready to win the open and besides you're not smart enough and you need a caddy like my caddy daniels and i'll tell you what i'll loan you my caddy for this championship and you'll win the championship and you'll thank me but that's the kind of guy so he shows uh, shows up to the caddy shack and he tells the caddy master i've got daniels he goes no sir that's hagan's caddy well it turns out that he's been given away and of course, Skip was crestfallen, and uh, here he'd been given away. And and but uh, after a couple of days of practice, he goes, "Sir, you know, I think you have what it takes to win." And so they're playing the Suez Canal hole at the uh, Royal St George, which is number fourteen. It's got a ditch across it before the green, and there's a road that goes along the side. And Walter Hagen is winning the championship, last Brown. And blub, 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 up comes a uh, Rolls-Royce on the road beside the 14th. And it's the Prince of Wales and Walter. They've come to see how Gene finishes. He's the only one that can catch Walter. So Gene tugs his drive, goes in the tall grass. Daniels pulls a niblet. He goes, what are you talking about? Dan, I'm going to win the tournament. Give me my brassy. Knocks it in the burn. Blub, blub, blub. Car goes up to the championship. Uh, Hagen gets the cup, 
uh, Saracen finishes like a dog. And at the end, he's telling Daniel, Dan, I'm so sorry. You know, I blew the thing. I didn't listen to you. I'm such an idiot. He goes, no, sir, you were courageous. You were trying to win the championship. You know, before I die, I'll carry your bag and you'll win the Open. So roll forward uh, a couple of years and uh, Gene comes over to play again. He plays a practice match at a role uh, at uh, Stoke Poges. And this young kid carries his bag. He shoots 67. He goes, uh, the kid says, I carry your bag at the open. He said, well, Daniel's probably dead. He said, okay, kid. So they show up at the, at the first tee of the open and an old man's hand comes over on his back. And Gene looks up, it's Daniel's. Ready for another go at it, aren't we, sir? He said, Dan, I thought you were dead. He goes, no, sir, I'm quite alive and ready to go. He said, well, I've already got a, a young kid for it. He goes, okay, no, no worries. He shadows him for a couple of rounds, and Lord Dennis Kerr comes up to Gene's hotel room and said, Gene, you know, you're playing like a dog. You're throwing clubs. You're cussing your caddy. Your caddy's cussing you. You're not suited for him. Besides, you, you've demoralized Daniels. You should fire, fire this kid and hire Daniels back. He said, do it. They win. Lady Astor is ready to give Gene the cup. He said, I'm not going to take the cup until my caddy gets back. He went to get his son. So on a bicycle, on the same road at, at, by the Suez Canal hole, comes this bicycle with Daniels and his son on the handlebars. And Gene was forbidden to do this, but he brings Daniels up on the dais. And he said, people of sandwich, I did not win this championship. My caddy won it. I would never have won it without Skip Daniels. He said, I give him my cup, I give him my check, I give him my polo coat, and I say, hip, hip, hooray, three cheers for your man of sandwich, Skip Daniels. Last scene is boy on the handlebars, Skip Daniels with a polo coat flapping in the breeze, riding on the road by the Suez Canal Hole. Daniels dies three months later. Gene Sarazen, I filmed Gene Sarazen, and he said, Sydney, I'm going over to have dinner. Uh, with the boy on the handlebars. I said, really? He's still alive. So I got a television crew and went over and went to the scene of the crime, the 14th hole, the Suez Canal hole, and filmed the boy on the handlebars who was 82, Leonard Daniels, telling the story right there, the scene of the crime. Unbelievable. And I go back to my office. You know, I'm like little Jack Horner who stuck in his thumb and pulled <laughs> said, what well, good, good boy I am. The phone rings in my office and my paralegal says, it's Gene Sarazen. I said, I'll take that call. So Gene says, Sydney, I heard that you were over talking to Leonard. I said, oh, yes, sir. I got the whole story from him. He said, no, you didn't. Leonard was just a boy. He didn't know the whole story. I'm the only one that knows the story. And if you come down to Marco Island tomorrow, I'll tell you the story. So I got a television crew, flew to Marco Island, and Saracen put the whole thing on film. And that is the best golf story. That's a pretty good golf story. That is That's a golf story. story. Oh, I feel like we, we could end with that, but I have a couple more. Number 15, uh, what is your favorite golf book or movie? Maybe, maybe one of each. And actually, I'm... I, I might ask you in a different way, maybe what is the one golf book or movie you recommend the most often? Because I feel like that is something that will, um, our, inter our listeners will be interested in. Well, um, 
you know, the, uh, the greatest game ever played, uh, Francis we met, um, has got to be one of them. Uh, you know, because Francis was just that guy. Uh, and and I, I think that that probably, the Mark Frost, that, that would probably be uh, the top one. Uh, and I talked about the match. Um, you know, I was, I was uh, at uh, Billmore Forest with Harvey Ward and sidled up to the bar. There was no, Harvey was getting his, his uh, fourth drink or whatever it was. And uh, there was nobody there. I said, Harvey, tell me the story. So by the time he finished, there were 20 people standing around. <laughs> I wish I had filled that. That would have been, that would have been awesome. But um, I, I really like uh, Bagger Vance. Uh, Bagger Vance was, was uh, you know, terrific story. Um, but, I, but I think the Francis Weaver story is, is one of the best. You know, Jeepers Creepers. Number 16. This is always an interesting one. But what is your least favorite hole in all of golf? This could be a very personal selection, of course. Uh, probably uh, least favorite hole is uh, I would I would say uh, number one uh, at St Andrews now imagine number one used to be non-existent the golf course played left to right played played clockwise okay now it plays counterclockwise when it first started, number 17 green was, was, was green number one. And so you saw all the bunkers. Right now, they flipped it around, built number one after the turn of the century. And uh, it became counterclockwise. But um, it is one of the most uncomfortable shots there's always 50 people watching. Uh, there's always the clubhouse. They're watching. And there's always a pretty good breeze. And, um, you know, it's supposed to be the widest fairway. Well, you know, you can, uh, uh, who was it? Ian Baker Fence hit it out of bounds there one time. <laughs> and But you can hit it as far left as you want, but you've got to hit it over the burn. And, you know, uh, it basically can turn into a par five real easy unless you want to try to skip it over the burn. I, but, it's, it, but it is it is a very intimidating shot. It's, it's kind of like number one off Augusta National. Um, you know, that's, that's another very intimidating shot. This next one is uh, telling of the times, but we have a lot of our members who enjoy an appropriate level of music on the golf course. I don't know if you strike me as a traditionalist, Sydney, but do you listen to golf on, or sorry, music on the golf course? No. And my daughter had the music going full blast the last time we played. And I said, what's up with that? And she goes, well, that's the way we roll now. <laughs> I go, really? But um, if you had, so this question, the nature of this question, we have some fun with it, but um, 
there's music that I, I, the more traditional approach is no music on the golf course. I tend to agree with it a lot of the time. Um, but there's music on the way to the golf course, a song that gets you in the right headspace to enjoy the game. Do you have a song that does that for you, Sydney? Yeah, I, I like, I like, uh, Beethoven. Any in particular? I like, I like the ninth and, um, you know, uh, and and um, uh, you know the 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 classical music. It seems to me is a little more serene. Um, you know, bum 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 bum. You know, as you, it just seems to me that that fits a little bit more uh, with where I'm coming from. I love it. And our final question for you, Sydney. Last question on the 19th. So if you had a motto, maybe you do, what would it be? That would be Lord Birkenhead, who said, life is short, health vital, dollars incapable of transport into the next world. And the more you enjoy your life and play golf, the better off you'll be. Lord Birkenhead. And he's dead. Um, it's kind of like the, uh, Louis Grizzard. He said, Elvis is dead and I'm not feeling too good myself. <laughs> uh, well, Sydney, I feel, um, uh, uplifted just chatting with you for this time. And I, I thank you again for uh, spending this time with us and giving us, um, so much behind the scenes. You know, the one thing about the internet that I've, I've found through um, doing this and is, is that you can find all kinds of answers out there, but it only gives you so much of the story. And, and I, I always am so impressed with folks like yourself that um, through means that I, I probably can't even fathom have, have collected these stories and, and you're such a great storyteller, Sid. And I just wanted to uh, uh, share that with you and say, thanks again for, for doing this. My, uh, my former uh, mentor and senior partner used to say, it's always safe to praise a dead lion. <laughs> yeah, you're alive and well, sir. I know it. I, I like and thank you for. Uh, well, I'm I'm very appreciative that you are extolling the virtues of Alexa Sterling Frazier, and uh, and her, you know, her her uh, daughter and uh, son uh, Richard Glenn has passed, unfortunately, the oldest son, but Sandra. Carwardine Frazier is still going and, and um, uh, you know, she is so grateful that her mother's uh, legacy is being uh, extolled and, and told um, and that she's being, you know, uh, inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame, uh, which is a great honor for anyone, but uh, it's long overdue and uh, and hats off to the Allen Athletic Club for uh, making it happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Hats off for you for doing this uh, this program uh, to allow an interact like me to, to uh, hold forth. It's one of the best parts about this game is once you get going down your rabbit hole, uh, the people that you meet, the places that you go, it's, uh, it's really an honor, Sid. So thanks again. We'll be in touch soon. I'm sure with the, the induction, if there's anything we can do from our little community, uh, we'd love to, to help out. 
Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we're at New Club Golf. This episode was produced by Mark Caldwell with research assistance by Jim Sitar. The Bag Drop is supported by members of New Club Golf Society and our official partners. <laughs>